Who's ready for the word today? Amen. All right. So, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm excited and then I'm kind of a little sad at the same time. You're like, what's that all about? Well, I'm excited because I just, I love what God's doing and I, I'm excited about this word, this message that we're doing, that we're bringing today. But I'm, I'm a little sad because we're closing out our message series today that we've been in for the last eight weeks today being week eight. Uh, if today is your first day, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Hopefully, maybe you've caught some of our podcasts or our live stream on Facebook. Uh, certainly, you can go back and watch all of the, or listen to all the messages that have led up to this one. Um, the full package of the message series is on our website, and you can just, you can check all that out anytime in the future or forward it, send it to people. But as you know, if you've been with us at any point, we've been talking a lot about just the, the, what is yet ahead, the glory of what yet awaits us, those who are sons and daughters of Christ, and what eternity looks like, what end times look like. And I've attempted, I, I hope I've done a, even just a reasonable job of this, and if I have, it's because of the Lord, but that we would have gone through, I wanted to go through this in a way where we didn't just focus on like one part of it. I wanted to try and be thorough in covering as much of the details through the process of, you know, from the return of Christ all the way through the eternal age and to just really kind of unpack that, mostly so we could get an understanding of these things in a way that encourages us, that builds our spirit, that builds our faith, and that really... Uh, takes away any fear or any anxiety about death or about what's after this life. It kind of amazes me, even in the church, people who are believers, who love Jesus, when you talk and they're very fearful of death and very afraid, you know, almost some uncertainties about what's ahead. And while we could never know all of the picture of glory that's yet ahead of us, we certainly see a lot that God gives us in his word and enough to be able to nourish the soul of our, of our uh, nourish our souls in a way that causes us to look forward to and anticipate and be excited about what's ahead and not actually be fearful in any way whatsoever. And so that was a heart and a, a big part of going through this series, what we wanted to accomplish, and then to really just light us on fire for mission to know that like time is ticking and we only have a limited amount of days here on this earth none of us know when that's going to end and that we are here for a purpose and a mission to do the work of God and to serve him and to honor him with what he's given us and what he's called us to that he may be glorified and more will be able to be in heaven one day uh, with the rest of us so on that what I'm going to do today is I'm going to close this out and I, I would explain this as I'm not necessarily adding a message at the end like this is another thing I'm going to do a message that kind of takes and weaves a thread now through everything that we've talked about for the last seven weeks kind of ties all of them together 
And you got to know that this isn't of any, you know, profound creativity on, on my part. This is the Word of God, actually. This is what God has given us in His Word when you look at it that you can see that there's a thread that has been running through all the works of Christ, those that are accomplished and those that are yet to come throughout the beginning of everything that God has done. And so in order to, to understand that, we have to go all the way back into the book of Exodus. We have to go into the time of Exodus. Y'all know what that is, right? Moses is leading the people, Israel, out of Egypt. They've been in bondage for 400 years in slavery, and God has used Moses to now bring them out of bondage, and they're being led into promised land. They take a little detour, a little hiatus for 40 years in the desert. <laughs> that was because they messed up. But anyway, that wasn't the plan. But the, Moses led them out of Egypt and was leading them into the promised land. And so there's something that happens in Exodus chapter 23. Chapter 23, verse 14. God instructs Moses that the people from this point on are going to uphold, are going to honor, are going to celebrate three different feast times throughout the year. And these three different feast times, which actually in these three periods, these three times, there's seven total feasts. And we're going to go through all those because what you're going to see, I'm just going to tell you ahead of time where we're going and then you'll see where we're at as we go through this, that all seven of these feasts that God instructed Moses to have the people uphold and keep are a picture and a foreshadow of a completed and fulfilled work that Christ himself would do through everything that he accomplished in his first and in the second coming. And it's an amazing picture of accuracy that will build your faith in Scripture, but also help you to see how Christ is really the center of everything. How he's always been and always, it will always be, it's always been and it'll always be about him. He's like this scarlet thread that's woven through all of Scripture from beginning to end. So in verse 14, God says to Moses, Three times you shall keep my feast throughout the year. You shall keep, here's the first one, the first season of the three, is the feast of unleavened bread. Number two in verse 16, he says, And then the feast of harvest which is the first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field. And then number three is the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you've gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. Notice this all revolves around an agricultural or harvest cycle, sowing and reaping. That's all through the scriptures. In verse 17, he says, three times in the year, you males shall appear before the Lord God. So once this was instituted, there was these three periods, the spring, the summer, and the fall, where these festivals were happening and the Jews were uh, so, supposed to take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They didn't already live in Jerusalem and go where the temple was eventually once they were in the promised land later on. And they would go there every year and they would honor these three festivals. And so during these times in the first festival, there's actually three separate occurrences or feasts that take place. In the second one, there's one. And then in the third season of ingathering, there's three feasts. So there's seven total. And I want to walk you through this. I want to try to unpack this in a way that you get, that you grab, because 
To me, this is some of the best revelation that we can grab out of the Scriptures as it pertains to the picture of the glory that yet awaits us, okay? So the first one is the Feast of Passover. So that begins in the months of March and April. It kicks off the spring season, the spring festival. So what is Passover? What we look at is we're going to look at first what it, what it was and then what it ends up being through Christ and his fulfillment. Oh, is that, does that make sense? So what it was, Passover was the celebration of God's sparing the people of Israel when the spirit of death came through the city of Egypt and killed the firstborn whenever he was bringing the plagues that would eventually lead to the deliverance, keyword deliverance, of the nation of Israel out of the bondage and slavery they were in in Egypt, okay? So what God does is he tells Moses, Passover, that day, he says, go and you and the people and everyone in their household are going to slaughter a lamb and you're going to prepare a meal and your household's going to eat and if there's households that want to join together, they join together. So everybody had a, a meal that night, but the, the lamb that was sacrificed for that meal that was killed, the blood of that lamb was actually painted over the doorposts and the lintel there of the doors of the homes of the Israelites. So that when the angel of death passed through the city, those whose houses were covered by the blood were be spared of death. They would be spared of that. And so we know that that's what happens. And, uh, and so the angel of death comes through and all the firstborn of Egypt are killed. Pharaoh releases God's people and they are let out of the city of Egypt and they are now beginning their exodus into the promised land. Hence the, Bible, the word exodus as the chapter of the, of the title of the book. So a couple of very profound things here. We know in the word that Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God. And we know that his work on the, Christ, on the cross was substitutionary and was sacrificial. So in the same way that the blood of the lamb that was sacrificed at the first Passover in Egypt covered the homes of those who were sons, children of God, so they were spared of death, Christ comes as the lamb of God and becomes the substitutionary work for our sin so that when we call upon Christ as Lord and Savior, we are covered by his blood. And when the Lord looks upon us, he sees the blood of Jesus and we are spared from the punishment of spiritual death, which is the final sentencing of lake and fire for those who die not believing in Christ. So the blood spares us of that final eternal punishment um, that waits those who are not covered by the blood. Another very interesting thing about this lamb that God told Moses what to do with this is he said, when you prepare this lamb and this meal, do not break any bones in the lamb. Seems okay, you know, whatever. So I'm gonna treat it delicately. No hammers, okay? Only knives. And so he says, don't break the bones. Well, there's a prophecy in the Old Testament about the Messiah that would come hundreds of years before Christ did come. And it says that not a bone in his body shall be broken. 
And then it also says in another prophecy that his side would be pierced. Let's marry those two things together and let's tie it to the Passover lamb because Jesus is the lamb of God. He's the final fulfillment of the Passover lamb. Because when Jesus went to the cross and he died, that day, during, it was the beginning of Passover, by the way, they were all in Jerusalem for the Passover. And so when Jesus went to the cross, it, they were in a hurry to get the crucifixions over with that day so that they could begin preparations for their festival and that they could partake. They didn't want to leave them hanging on the cross. Well, there's a lot of suffering and they can just slowly die when they're hanging on the cross. But when their feet are set on that little board, they can hold themselves up so they can actually still breathe and it causes them to live longer. So they would commonly go around when they wanted to speed this up and they would break their legs, break the bones in their legs so their legs gave out and then they would just suffocate and wouldn't be able to breathe. So the soldiers go around, they start to do this while Jesus is on the cross and the other two that are alongside of him and they come to Jesus and it says that they stuck a spear in his side because at this point what had already happened is that Jesus had already said it is finished and gave up his spirit so his, he, was, he had now physically died. And so they stuck the spear in his side and saw that water came out with blood which indicated that he was dead, not living and they never broke his legs. Very miraculous that that happened given the conditions that were occurring around these crucifixions. Not a bone in his body shall be broken. The Passover lamb was prepared and they were not allowed to break any bones when they prepared it. You see the tie in there, hallelujah. And then it, it also says that he was pierced in the side so in the prophecy in the Old Testament. So we see that the bones not being broken and the piercing of the side are completed through ancient prophecy in the work of Christ on the cross but fulfilling it in the sense that he became the final lamb of God whose blood would cover us once and for all and spare us of that death that would await those who die in sin so there's the first one Passover the second one is the feast of unleavened bread now try to make this clear the feast of unleavened bread is the first spring festival in that Feast of Unleavened Bread, during that week, you have Passover, you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread for the week, and then you also have what's called the beginning of the Feast of First Fruits. So all three are in the spring. It's around the harvest cycle. So the second one is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Where this began is when God was bringing the people out of Egypt after the angel of death had passed through and now they're packing their stuff up and they're heading out he says to Moses do not put any leaven I suppose that's like yeast uh, do not put any leaven in your bread so they would make the dough and prepare the bread and they'd have leaven in there and it would cause the dough to rise and then they would bake the bread and it was I guess better that way but he says specifically that you have no leaven in your bread the reason for that is because he was saying, my deliverance of whenever I take you out is going to be swift, it's going to be quick, and it's going to be thorough. You don't have time to sit around and wait for the bread to leaven. So they got all the dough that they had and they had no leaven and they marched out of Egypt toward the promised land in the Exodus with no leaven in that dough. 
Now, ultimately, whenever they ran out of the dough in the wilderness, God began to bring manna, miraculously bread from heaven out of the sky, which ended up being their sustenance and their nutrition so that they could survive during the wilderness period and during the exodus. But several of the things that we see in the original beginning of unleavened bread with what Christ accomplished and how that was fulfilled is that first of all, the salvation of the Lord when it comes to us comes swiftly, quickly, and thoroughly. The deliverance out of the life of sin and death and delivered to a new life of glory. It happens swiftly, quickly, and uh, thoroughly. Why do I say that? Because when we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, when we give our heart to Him, in that moment, the Holy Spirit comes to live on the inside of us and we are born again. It's not something we have to keep working our way toward, keep building up to, keep earning a little bit more of it until we have it all. A decision for Christ is fully sufficient to regenerate the soul. It's swift and quick and we are delivered entirely out of the bondage of sin and death whenever we give our life to him. It's a powerful thing. You ever like when you're going somewhere and you're leaving, you're kind of like in a hurry and you don't have time to pack everything up or grab everything and you just get in a rush and get out the door? Anybody, like that's everywhere we go, okay? And so, you know, we're heading out and we're trying to round the kids in the car and dad, I didn't, I forgot to grab my blanket. Oh, I don't have my shoes on. Like how does nobody have shoes on? Like we're, we just get in the car barefoot now, okay? And socks and shoes and and you know, we forgot our brother. And no, I'm just kidding. We haven't done that yet. <laughs> we came close a couple times. But I just count. I'm like, eh, five out of six, 80-something percent. That's good enough for most things that I do, you know. But this is how it was. They had to get out quickly because God was delivering them swiftly. I love the song Amazing Grace. And I love the verse where it says, how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. When faith sets in and belief is there, miraculous, supernatural, born-again salvation comes to us and we are delivered out of that law of sin and death that we are born into the world with. So there's this powerful thing of deliverance. The other part of this that we see completed is this bread in the wilderness, right? This bread, this manna in the wilderness that's coming down from heaven later on we see that Jesus is talking about it and he said, you know, your fathers, when he's talking to the people of Israel, your fathers had Moses and they had the bread from heaven, but I am the bread of life. So now, while there was supernatural provision for sustenance to sustain their physical man in the wilderness, it was only an imperfect partial occurrence of the fulfillment of the perfect that was yet to come, which is in Christ, the bread of life that nourishes our souls every single day and provides sustenance for everything that we're called to do. So you see all these different tie-ins in, in the unleavened bread as well. And then the third one is the feast of first fruits. So what that was was the very first harvest in their agricultural cycle that they had in the year, in the spring. It was the barley harvest. So what they did before they came for the festival is that they would actually harvest the first fruits, the first crops that were coming in on the barley harvest. They would round it all up, leaving no more fruit 
on the plants, right? There was still more uh, growth that was yet to occur. And they would bring that all to the city and they would present that as an offering in the house of the Lord. And then there would be sacrifices that would be made. But they essentially were sacrificing, giving up, forfeiting their first fruits in faith, knowing that the rest of the harvest was still yet to come in and that God would bring the rest of the harvest. Now, another thing, just as a side point, and so this part of what this represents is the covenant that we have with God in the tithe. We bring the first fruits to him that he's blessed us with when we, and it's a way of saying in faith, we know that the rest is coming in. And so that's what they did. They were always called to live a life of faith. And once they had, once the harvest came in and they harvested all that God had brought, they actually were, were instructed to leave the four corners of their fields and not glean those and the reason they were to leave those is because the poor and those who were servants were allowed to come through and eat and be sustained off of those as well. So you not only had the first fruits, which represents the tithe, but you also had the fruit of generosity, which is above and beyond that, which are basically like we refer to as offerings beyond just that part. So they were instructed all the way back in the Old Testament to live like this. And as they did, they were living in faith and God continued to always provide and meet their needs in a flow of abundance. It was a beautiful thing. So there's these first fruits that are a sign of that which is yet to come. And so when we look at what the Bible says about Christ, when he was risen from the dead, when he was raised and resurrected from the grave, it says that he himself was the first fruits for us, for those who, had yet, who were yet to come. So Christ being raised from the dead was the first to conquer death and then all who would know Christ, who would be covered by his blood, would come after him, would also be raised from the grave to eternal life in heaven with God for all of eternity. And it says that, if you have your Bible, actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'll read these verses quickly, but verse 20, it says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and he has become the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep, which means have already died. So even though they had died, we know from previous weeks that, God, that Jesus was the first to release and, and take all those spirits to heaven. It says that uh, he was the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, now that's Adam through sin, by man, capital M, Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead, resurrected from the grave, new bodies, eternal life. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. We all die in different periods, right? Christ is the first fruits, and then afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. So the festival of first fruits was entirely fulfilled in Jesus through the resurrection from the grave after the cross. And then the fourth one, which I'm, after I'm explaining this, you're, you're going to see that these first four of the seven have actually already been fulfilled. But the last three are still yet to be fulfilled in what we've been talking about for the last number of weeks through the return of Christ and then up through the eternal age. So we'll get there in a second. But the fourth one is the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Weeks. So this now goes into the summer season, okay? We've already been through the first three in the spring. Now we're in the summer, Feast of Weeks. 
Weeks in Hebrew is the word Shavat. Weeks in Greek is the word Pentecost. So that's where we see the day of Pentecost. I think we all probably know what happened there, but we're going to talk about that when God's Spirit got poured out. So it was called the Feast of Weeks because what God instructed Moses to do, and let me say this, this is all in the book of Leviticus chapter 23. All the instructions for all these festivals and feasts are in there. I encourage you to, to study this later. So the instruction that he gave Moses for the Feast of Weeks is that they would wait seven weeks or 49 days after Passover and then on the 50th day would be the celebration of Pentecost. Okay, so now what's amazing is that we see, first of all, say with Jesus that he died, he was in the belly of the earth three days and then he was resurrected. He was on the earth appearing to his disciples and other men for 40 days in resurrected form and then he ascended and he told the apostles, go to the city and wait for me and, and for the promise and so he went to be with the Father in heaven. They waited a week in the city of Jerusalem and then the Holy Spirit was poured out at the day of Pentecost. Why that's so significant is because according to Jewish scholars, that Pentecost, the first Pentecost, or the Shavat in Hebrew, occurred after the pa- 50 days after the Passover when they were led out of Egypt in the Exodus, and it was the day that Moses went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. So the law was given in the first one, the tablets of stone that God himself wrote on the fin- on, with his finger on those tablets, the Ten Commandments. Remember when Moses came down from the mountain after he got them the first time and they were in uh, immorality and they were worshiping a golden calf and Moses got ticked off and he threw the tablets down and broke them, right? Very sensible thing to do. So God had to remake them later. There were two sets of tablets. It's just interesting. I don't know. Funny things to me. Um, So as Moses comes down and breaks the tablets, and the people are are worshiping this golden calf and this idol, the Lord deals with the people, and he he still spares them, but he deals with them where he brings judgment, and 3,000 of them die that day. They go through the camp of Israel, and 3,000 of them are killed for their rebellious spirit against God. So think about this. On the day of Pentecost, after Christ had ascended back and then the apostles were waiting, it says that the Holy Spirit was poured out. Divided tongues of fire sat upon each of them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They went out that day in a power and authority that they had never walked in before and they began to preach the gospel. And as a result of that, that day, 3,000 people were saved. 3,000 again. The first Pentecost The law was given. Man could never uphold the law. He could never fulfill the law. It was imperfect. And 3,000 people died. When Jesus came, that year Pentecost happened, the Holy Spirit was poured out and 3,000 people were born again. The perfection of the new covenant versus the imperfection of the old. In the old covenant, in the Old Testament, it says God wrote on tablets of stone. 
Jer- the book of Ezekiel, it says that God will take a heart of stone out of us and give us a heart of flesh. And in the book of Hebrews, it says he no longer writes the law on the tablets of stone, but writes them on our hearts and on our minds. Only because the Holy Spirit came and fulfilled it. And now it could be spoken, communicated, and given to us by the Spirit who bears witness with our spirit inside of us. Isn't that amazing? So you have all four of these that are completed and then the three that are yet to come are the three that are actually in the fall harvest cycle so the first season of spring was called the feast of uh, unleavened bread the middle one the summer which is may june is called the feast of harvest this is a little confusing but the first fruits begins during unleavened bread but the feast of harvest is actually it, it combines the first fruits and Pentecost are both considered the Feast of Harvest because at Pentecost, that was when the wheat harvest came in and they did the same thing all over again with the first fruits of that harvest. So they've been harvesting all spring and all summer and now we get to the fall, which that season, that festival is called the Feast of Ingathering. Ingathering. Now, if you've been with us in the last number of weeks, you've heard me say that word gathering of the saints together. So think about this for a second. The first feast in in-gathering in the fall is the Feast of Trumpets. Feast of Trumpets. What would happen at the end of the harvest, it was over after the spring and summer were done, trumpets, shofars, they call them, would be blown and consecutive uh, announcements to in- instigate the end of the harvest cycle. So the laborers who were in the fields harvesting would come in when the trumpets sounded and they would cease harvesting because the harvest cycle was now over. And when they came in, they would come in to worship God in the temple and come in to celebrate the harvest that God had brought. And trumpets started this whole celebration oh let me try to contain myself in revelation chapter thank you for that whoever said that back there thank you christine god bless you (laughs) all right in revelation chapters 8 through 11 we see the sounding of seven trumpets by angels in heaven as the tribulation unfolds and the day of the lord approaches At the end of the seventh trumpet, the saints are gathered together in the air with Christ. Those who are caught up or caught away and those who are already in heaven with the Lord are all gathered in gathering together in the sky, started by trumpets, and the harvest is over. The age changes. The church age is done. And the millennial begins to set in. And the time for harvest is over. That's why Jesus was so adamant when he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. We are still in the harvest cycle right now. This is it. We're harvesting. It's not over yet. When the, trumpet, when the last trumpet sounds and in the twinkling of an eye, the sky rips open and Christ comes back and we're all gathered together in the air, we can say the harvest is over at that point. But not until then, which means we are all embarked on a mission from God himself to pursue building his kingdom in the way he's called us to live and lead our lives through our own purpose. 
So the fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets is still yet ahead. The sixth one was the Day of Atonement, which was during that week long of ingathering. Began with trumpets, and then you have the week of ingathering. You have atonement, which that was the day, Yom Kippur is in Jew, Jewish faith, that's what that is. And that was the day of atonement where the sacrifice was made and the blood was taken into the Holy of Holies by the high priest one time a year. And that sacrifice was offered and the people were forgiven of their sins and they had to go through that whole thing all over again the next year. Right? I don't know about you, but I'd, like, I'd need that before the end of that same day. <laughs> you need to bring the blood back out. <laughs> Um, so anyway, so the day of atonement. Now, we know that the blood of Christ has already cleansed us and atoned for our sins. That part is fulfilled. But the great white throne judgment that yet awaits when Christ comes in, Hades delivers up the dead and all the unbelievers from all of the ages are judged and then sentenced. Now, all of the judgment is then atoned for or satisfied. It is then, at that point, all complete. So we see the trumpets at the day of the Lord. We see the day of atonement with the great white throne judgment. And then the very last feast of those seven was the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration of how the Lord provided shelter for the people of Israel during the wilderness years and protected them and kept them. And during this time, they would even make these little huts. In fact, the word in Hebrew is sucketh which is suck it, which is to mean little booths. And they would build these little huts and they would go and they would have their meals in them and they would uh, sometimes even sleep in them during the week-long festival. It was just a celebration of the Lord providing and tabernacling with them even in the desert period. Now, if you look back, there is a, what I would explain as a, a building and an intensification of the way we know tabernacles. The first tabernacle that we see is when Moses built the tent of meeting or tabernacle of meeting in the wilderness and they moved around and that was where the ark was. That was where God, the presence of God was and Moses would go in there. There was a holy of holies there and he would go in and meet with God and come out and talk with the people. Later on, Solomon builds the actual temple that God instructs him to build on the top of Mount Zion, the property that David purchased for Solomon to build that temple from. And when he builds it, he builds it where there's the Holy of Holies. We talked about the resemblance of that with New Jerusalem last week. And the presence of God in the ark is back there. So you had the first tabernacle was the tent. And then you have the next temple of Solomon. And then when Jesus comes, the Holy Spirit comes to live on the inside of us. It says in the book of Corinthians that we now become temples or tabernacles of the Holy Spirit. So the presence of God in the tabernacle is now in us in a way that's never been known before in the tent of meeting or in Solomon's temple. Even though the presence of God was still there, now he's here in us and we are the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. But the fullness of where we see this set in was when we read last week in Revelation 21 and John looked up and he said, the angel said, behold, God is coming to be with men. He is their tabernacle and he will dwell with them forever. They will see his face to see him in fullness and the presence and the glory of the Lord will radiate through all of heaven. There will be no need for sun or moon. So the presence of God, there isn't even any tabernacle because God himself is the tabernacle which means he is just in everything and we are surrounded by him. 
And the presence of God is now set in in a way that has never been seen before. That's why John says when we go, we'll see him as he is. So these are the seven, and we see how accurate and how consistent God is with Scripture all the way through this, but we see the role that Christ plays in every single part of it. That's the key. In everything we look at, to attempt, to interpret, to discern, to understand, we must look for Christ in every part of Scripture as we approach our our interpretation and our understanding because that's what it's all about. It's all meant to reveal the Son in everything as we pursue that, to know Him more. So I'll close with this. These were the seven that God gave to Moses to institute, and they were all to be upheld every single year. But there was one other thing in that book of Leviticus 23 that God gave to Moses and instructed him to uphold. It wasn't one of the seven feasts. There were only seven. But there was an eighth thing. It was the Sabbath. Now, we know that the Sabbath is six days of work, one day of rest, the seventh day. It's not real difficult to figure that one out, okay? Six days of work, seventh day is rest. God himself demonstrated this through creation when it says on the seventh day he rested. Pretty sure he doesn't need to sleep. So he was sending a message to us that this is significant. Now, as a side point, I'm as guilty of anyone as this, so I'm just gonna acknowledge that up front. But it amazes me how we attempt to embrace all of these things and follow all of these things in this word that it instructs us, and we neglect that one. We become so busy as a people and as a society that we think we need seven 24-hour days to do everything we have to do. And the Lord said, it's never been that way. (laughs) Actually, in order to do what you're called to do, you need six good days and one day of rest, not seven full days of work. And if you try that, you're in dysfunction and you will not be able to sustain that pace and you won't be able to walk in the fullness of your calling. Just can't happen. So the seventh day is a day of rest and we need that. Now, in addition to just the week-long Sabbath at the end, there was also what was called the Sabbath year. So after six years, in the seventh year, the land would become fallow. It was a Sabbath year, meaning they were not allowed to plant, to till, and to harvest the same way they had been doing for the other six years. And it says that God actually provided enough abundance in the sixth year that it sustained them through the seventh year, and they were also allowed to eat just what was growing off of the crops that were still there, that were still producing fruit in the seventh year. So they were fully provided for. Also, remember on day six of the manna, the manna was more plentiful to account for day seven when they didn't work, so they already had enough manna for day six and seven, so they didn't have to go out and gather. God cares about your rest. He cares about the condition to which we work and labor in, and rest is a key component to that. So we have this Sabbath year where the ground remains fallow and no planting is done. But there's one more thing. There's actually seven Sabbaths that God instructs. Every seven Sabbaths, say that five times fast, 49 years. The 50th year is the year of Jubilee. And that is commonly referred to in Jewish tradition as the year of the Lord or the Lord's favor. 
Remember that. In the Jubilee year, it was a redemptive year. All who were indebted, those who had sold property or indebted property to someone to pay a debt, or those who had to become enslaved. That's how a lot of times how enslaved and servants happen is that they couldn't pay debts. All those who were indebted and enslaved and all those who had been indebted and forfeited property that was rightfully their families, in the 50th year of Jubilee, it was all restored and put back where it belonged. People were given their properties back. People were granted freedom and they were allowed to go back to be with their families and not serve anymore. I wish Bank of America would honor this. That would be really great. Hey, Jubilee. <laughs> oh, I still got a bill. Okay. Anyway, it was a redemptive year. You got to know that. It's so important because God was saying, you don't own any of it. I own it all. That's what he was saying. He's saying, and in the 50th year, the year of the Lord's favor, Jubilee, I'm going to restore it all. I'm going to redeem it all back to where it belongs. So Jesus comes along. And in Luke chapter 4 if you remember this he's in Nazareth he's beginning his ministry he goes into the synagogue and he opens up the book of Isaiah and he starts to read from the scriptures and when he reads them he says this day these scriptures have been fulfilled he shuts the book and says I'm basically the guy that I just read about and the people wanted to kill him for it they tried to take him up on the top of Mount Precipice in Nazareth. We were actually there when we were in Israel last year. It's a remarkable place. There's a big cliff off the backside. It said that they wanted to throw him off and kill him. His own hometown. <laughs> because he read this book from Isaiah, prophecies, and then he said, today this book has been fulfilled. What did he read? Verse eight, 18, chapter four, I'm sorry, verse 16. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. He was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Remember, he was, he was baptized and the Spirit descended like a dove upon him in the wilderness by, by John the Baptist, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, good news, and those who are poor in heart. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives. Remember how he vanquished hell in the three days and delivered the captives. And recovery of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, most historians and scholars agree that when he did this, he's proclaiming the year of the Lord that he was beginning his ministry, Jesus, the Redeemer, beginning his ministry during a jubilee year, a, re a redemptive year. It was the year of the Lord and the Lord's favor. And he was saying, I am the Redeemer. All this about redemption that God has intended for his people all along in these imperfect ways, now the Redeemer is here and I've come to redeem mankind by my blood and by my sacrifice to redeem you, meaning to buy you and purchase you and restore a debt that you owe that you can't pay. I will restore that debt and I will restore you back to relationship with me and with my Father. And the Holy Spirit will come to live on the inside of you because he is the Redeemer. Do you see the thread that just weaves through all of these scriptures? And this idea of rest 
Jesus came, he gave us his Holy Spirit, and he, first of all, he said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, he said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, meaning to restore and to refresh the life in this earth is a life with trial and tribulation, but with the Holy Spirit in us, it is meant to be a life of rest. There is not to be agony and anguish. God will give prosper and they will add prosperity and add no sorrow with it. We will have a place of rest in the way that we function in our soul. It is well with my soul. Rest. Jesus gave, gives to us by the Holy Spirit. But there is also a point, and I'll close with this, in Hebrews chapter 4, where it speaks about a final rest, the fulfillment of our rest. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses, I think, 8 through 10. Yeah. It says, For if Joshua had given the people of Israel rest, meaning when they went into the promised land, um, he would not afterward have spoken of another day. So Joshua talked about a rest that was yet to come. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. Most often referred to these verses as the description of the eternal Sabbath, the eternal place of rest that we enter into after we leave this earth. God's commanded us to take rest so that we can be all we're called to be. He gives us his Holy Spirit so that we now walk in rest, the fulfillment of redemption, but there is a rest that yet awaits all of us who know Christ that's that eternal Sabbath that we enter into, just like we read about when the glory of the Lord fills all of heaven, we're there with him. There's no sin, there's no evil, there's no heartache, there's no pain. It's just perfection, it's paradise. There's nothing there to ail us and it will just be a life of rest. I can't even really wrap my mind around that. But when I say to you, that when you read these verses and you understand what the Bible says about our eternal home, you can't come to any other conclusion than the life that still yet awaits us is far greater than even the life that we walk through now. We lose nothing, we forfeit nothing when we leave this earth to go to be with Jesus in heaven. Our condition only improves, intensifies exponentially and becomes greater than anything we could imagine. You don't have to fear death. If you know Christ, you're heaven bound and eternity is a beautiful place and all who know him will be joined together. All those who've gone before us, we will reunite with and those who come after us will reunite with us and it'll be one glorious place that we spend all of eternity in. Praise God for that. Amen.